Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today's episode is about critical raw materials. We will discuss what makes a raw material critical. We will also talk about the EU Critical Raw Materials Act that is currently being discussed. And we will obviously look at all these things through the lens of the implications for businesses globally. And my expert today, my expert guest is Ludovine Wouters. Ludovine Wouters is managing partner of Latitude 5, an investment and advisory firm operating in emerging markets. As a strategy, governance, and policy advisor with expertise in transaction management, regulatory affairs, and government relations, Ludovine assists natural resources companies and investors in emerging markets. She also works on technical assistance programs for states, focusing on mining minerals policy, governance, and taxation, and assists donor agencies in the definition, assessment, and implementation of critical minerals and responsible sourcing priorities, policies, and initiatives. Ludovine has experience in political risk insurance within a Lloyd's Insurance Syndicate and significant legal experience as well in corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, and capital markets with leading international firms in Paris. She also worked for an emerging markets investment bank in London, focusing on metals and mining clients, particularly African juniors. Ludovine holds a master in business law from the Université Panthéon, uh, Paris II, and a Juris uh, Doctor in law from the Université Panthéon Sorbonne, which is Paris I. So universities in Paris are numbered. <laughs> and um, she uh, was called to the bar in, or is called to the bar in Paris. In 2013, she was also nominated by her peers to be one of 100 global inspirational women in mining. And currently, she's also a visiting fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Ludovine, that is a very long and very impressive uh, CV that you have. We are very happy to have you on uh, this show here today. Welcome, Ludovine. Thank you very much. So I mentioned in my introduction the EU Critical Raw Materials Act. And a lot of our listeners will probably not be specifically from the raw materials industry. So could we maybe start things off with you giving us an overview of what this act is, what its main provisions are, and maybe even give a definition what makes a raw material a critical raw material? Sure. Thank you very much for having me to to discuss these topics. I think they're, they're very important in terms of how we shape uh, the industry and the relationships between Europe and, uh, and other markets in the next decades. The Critical Raw Materials Act was announced as a proposal by the Commission mid-March. This is not an isolated initiative. First of all, 
it is part of a wide array of initiatives or regulatory proposals that focus either on industrial stakes, so the Net Zero Industry Act, for example, uh, which comes right under the new industrial strategy of 2020, but also a lot of initiatives focusing on how um, the EU produces and consumes energy. The Repower EU plan from May 2022, um, which of course itself is very much the result of the acceleration of a thought process on energy resulting from the Ukraine war and the shock to the European energy system. So the CRM Act is, is part of a much wider view on how Europe powers itself, its industry, but also its future. I should also say that Europe didn't start thinking about critical minerals in 2022 or 2023. In 2008, the Raw Materials Initiative was really kicked off to have a holistic thought process about criticality, but also responsibility in mineral value chains. So you already have a series of prior steps which have really built and matured the thought process. First of all, since 2008, every three years, the EU adopts a list of critical raw materials. The methodology behind that has evolved, and that's already an interesting part of where we are in 2023. I'll touch on that in a moment. But Europe has also thought a great deal about the responsibility stakes. Minerals at any cost is no longer an acceptable proposition. There has been a complete view on how we source minerals from the conflict minerals regulation of 2017 to a more holistic thought process about principles for sustainable raw materials inside the internal market, which were adopted. This is a set of guidelines. It's not a binding set of, of regulation in 2021. And I should also stress that the corporate sustainability reporting and corporate sustainability due diligence regulations both connect, of course, to mineral stakes because transparency is a key part of responsibility in raw materials value chains. So all of that paints a very wide and diverse landscape of, of initiatives. The Critical Raw Materials Act in that context is, first of all, a proposal for regulation. That proposal very much tries to span a series of internal and external actions. That proposal is backed by a revised criticality assessment. So we have a new list of critical minerals that has been adopted and that backs the proposal for regulation. And one thing that's very interesting is that since 2021, I believe, the EU has added to its criticality assessment a very forward-looking assessment. That's what they call the foresight study. And actually, the foresight study looks not at criticality in terms of the traditional parameters of what is at risk of supply and economic importance, the two classic thresholds for criticality, but very much what is the outlook that we have for industry in 10, 20, 30 years, how do minerals feature in that, and what are the sectors and technologies that will be the makers of European industry. So the foresight study, I think, is an important part of, of the thought process. 
And the reason I mention it is because in 2023, the EU defined a list of 34 critical raw materials. Some are new, some are have been removed from the list. But what's more important is that there is a subset now of these critical materials, which are strategic raw materials. Strategic raw materials are those amongst the critical, which are very much linked to that forward-looking projection for European industry. That's important because you have minerals there that are not technically critical, according to the quantitative parameters that define criticality for the EU, but are very much deemed strategic. Copper and nickel, because copper is so intrinsically necessary to electrification, nickel, because it's a part of the battery value chains, are both strategic, even though they don't meet the threshold. The reason I think this is important is because it shows a maturity in the thought process about minerals from the EU regulators. And that is going to influence the expectations that they have of business. The CRM Act aims to trigger private sector action and the definition of strategic minerals, of strategic forward-looking outlooks is the basis on which that conversation is going to happen. You mentioned criticality uh, almost in passing, but I think for our listeners it's important to understand this. And I think that you mentioned two components. Is One is how important it is for the industry, in this case European industry, how important an ingredient or a component it is. And the second one is the availability, basically. How, how difficult is it to get it, to source it globally? So those are the two at least traditional elements of criticality. And yes. copper is important, but it's not very scarce because we can get it from different places. Is that the idea behind it, why it's not on the traditional list? Exactly. And what's interesting there is that the EU was a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of defining and adopting a criticality methodology in 2008. Since then, there have been other criticality assessments, and there's a lot of debate as to criticality methodology. What I find interesting is that the criticality methodology, which, as you say, rests on the confluence of these two parameters of economic importance and supply risk, particularly supply disruption risk, is almost a given now. So you find the same methodology in the US, which adopted a first list of critical minerals in 2018. This was revised in 2021, I believe, or 2022. You find very similar dynamics in terms of defining criticality worldwide. What I find more interesting is that we are sort of moving beyond the methodology. The methodology is very important to have sound assessment. It's a snapshot of a situation. There's now a very forward-looking approach. And I think that approach shows not only in the definition of a new subset of materials, but also in the way that the relationships are created around raw materials. So when you look, for example, at the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the Inflation Reduction Act is based also on a very forward-looking view of which aspects of certain value chains the U.S. wants to protect and or reshore or friendshore. 
it's based on a prospective view, and the minerals are part of an integrated approach that focuses on the outcome. The EU doesn't have exactly the same approach, but it also has a very forward-looking approach. And the G7, which recently adopted a, a first sort of very light-touch five-point plan on CRM in April, which just met in May and came out with a series of statements about responsibility in mineral value chains and how that links to wider stakes of security, of uh, protection of democracy, of good governance. All of these thought processes are now much more forward-looking. Are they forward-looking enough? I'm not entirely certain. And more importantly, do they completely integrate other parameters beyond criticality and the needs for industry? I'm thinking of the protection of biodiversity. I'm thinking of the balance between mineral extraction, processing, and usage, and a series of other planetary systems. And I think that's where we are now going to see the next big conversation. And that conversation will need to integrate business a great deal more. When we talk about criticality, I mean, obviously, the number of sources plays a role. So the more there are, the, the easier, I guess, it is to get stuff. But I think also the types of countries where material uh, originates from plays a role, right? I mean, and I was surprised, actually, to hear you talk uh, so much about copper and nickel, which in my amateurish interpretation are like, you know, very standard minerals. Everybody talks about rare earths and lithium and all these kind of things. But copper seems to be fairly standard. Now, if I'm not uh, completely wrong, a lot of copper, for example, comes from Chile. A lot of copper comes from places such as Australia, two relatively stable democratic countries, friendly towards the West. So it's unlikely, I would say, at least in my immediate interpretation, that there would be some kind of disruptions. Is that also something that this approach looks into, trying to determine how likely it is that a source country might uh, use supplies um, as some kind of a strategic tool in, in geopolitics? I think that's an aspect, but I think, and this is where I, th I find a certain maturity in the approach, that other elements are taken into consideration. The reality is that resource-rich countries do have a huge amount of leverage on allowing, supporting or enabling, but also hindering growth of their mineral sector and production of minerals. But that agency does have a limit. Every resource-rich country, including some of the most you know, advanced economies like Canada and Australia, actually competes for investment in minerals. The, the unlocking of mineral potential requires massive amounts of investment. It also requires investment that comes from a highly specialized and fairly limited pool of risk capital. So the reality is that beyond location, the questions of availability of capital, of control of capital, and how that capital locks certain production into potential commercial transactions is also an element to consider. So yes, there is a lot of copper everywhere. The reality is, at the moment, investment flows 
towards exploration that would be finding new resources or that would be defining the feasibility of mining certain resources is not flowing in the amounts that we would think considering the urgency and the stringency of the criticality agenda. The second thing is that even the minerals that are discovered and can be developed into operating mines, the capital investment in these projects has an effect on how these products are commercialized. Offtake agreements are part of a wide array of financing tools for mining, but they are essential because they can, from day one, determine where minerals flow, how, and frankly, the host nation, whether it is an emerging market with limited capacity to pre-negotiate its position in this relationship, or Canada, actually has very little to say. There is a market for minerals that operates slightly independently of these geostrategic considerations. And that's one of the difficulties of bringing these two worlds to the same conversation. And one of the examples of that is, of course, the whole debate about investment by Chinese companies or even Chinese state interests in companies that explore for or mine minerals that are listed in Toronto or in Australia or in London, which are the three biggest capital markets for mining. So there are multiple levels to this discussion of location, control, commercial control. Now, having a concept, defining, setting up a list of critical or strategic raw materials is one thing, but that's in a certain way, one could almost say is a theoretical exercise. But then what does the EU want to do with that list? So what's in that act or in those provisions in terms of action items? What does the EU or Europe want companies or other players in the market to do differently following those provisions? And, and this is where the subset of strategic raw minerals kicks in, because this is 17 minerals um, including some which are actually multiple minerals under one heading of rare earth elements. But around these 17 core and forward-looking mineral value chains, the EU has done two things. The first one is set itself ambitions. So the Act, very famously, has defined a series of targets. By 2030, the EU would like at least 10% of annual consumption so that's the threshold of strategic raw minerals to be extracted in the EU. It would like at least 40% of annual consumption to be processed in the EU. Again, this speaks to the balance of control and power in mineral value chains at different levels. It also sets a target for at least 15% of annual consumption to be recycled in the EU. This is a very debatable threshold, not because of the percentage, but because of the basis on which it's calculated. And I can come back to that in a minute. The last one speaks to your concern about concentration and control by host nations. So the EU has set itself there a target that no more than 65% of its annual consumption of strategic raw minerals at any stage of processing or even primary production 
can come from a single third country. So these are quite aspirational in some aspects. I think they tell us a couple of things. The first one is that the EU fully acknowledges that its sufficiency will be built on the strengths of external relationships. Because without primary production, and the EU acknowledges that 90% will necessarily continue to come from elsewhere, without primary production, there is no mineral value chain. The other thing I would say is that the 65% threshold for deconcentration, for diversification of mineral value chains is going to play out very differently. When you're talking about rare earth elements, at the moment, even if you can produce rare earths, there is only one production that is fully processed outside of China. And rebuilding that processing capacity in the EU will require a lot of financial risk, but also skills, which we have lost. 30 years of depreciation of skills has a colossal impact on our capacity to rebuild. And the last thing I would say is that the 15% target on recycled materials, I believe, will shift in the context of negotiation of the Act with the Council and with the Parliament, because defining a threshold for recycled materials as a percentage of annual consumption actually creates unintended consequences. Because the best way to meet that threshold is to have poor quality products, which you recycle quickly, and then you meet a 15% threshold. So there's a lot more focus on redefining the basis of the recycling target than the actual percentage. That's the first thing the EU does is set ambitions. And then the second thing is a series of initiatives or actions that it defines, both internal and external, to meet those ambitions. And these goals, they all apply to the bundle of these 17 strategic goods. So I understand that probably they will play out very differently depending on which one you look at, like home production. I mean, I assume that a lot of them will not even be available in the European Union, right? Indeed, I think the, the targets very much set a projection and ambition. It is acknowledged that they will play out differently. But it's also important because it sets a, a clear direction on what matters to the EU. The 17 strategic raw minerals link to a series of technologies and sectors which are key to the European economy, which are also where the economy, the European economy sees its own competitive advantages. So yes, it will play out differently, but what matters is the outcome of these strategic raw mineral value chains, which is industry. And I would add, and this is probably where we will see some shifts as the act goes through the parliamentary discussion, and there were some very interesting committee discussions already early last week, adding another element of balancing these stakes, these industrial and employment stakes, with biodiversity stakes, with climate stakes, with a wider view on demand management, will be another aspect of the act. Now, you mentioned earlier that, uh, in your view, there's 
too little investment in some of these uh, mining operations. You mentioned copper, but there will probably be others. Now, one might also say that if there's a free market, then the capital will flow wherever it is best put to use, wherever the returns on investment are the highest. So things should play out very nicely. In this light, one could also argue, and some people obviously do, that acts such as the EU Critical Raw Materials Act are just some form of nationalism in disguise, tools that will disrupt a market even further and will lead to potentially misallocation of investments. What do you say about these things? Is that true or do you disagree? To be honest, I'd love to have a crystal ball and a definitive answer. I actually think that we need to avoid taking short-sighted views on regulatory or policy initiatives and on how the market works. So first and foremost, the reality is at the moment... It is clear that investment in mineral exploration and development, effectively the levers of growth in this industry, are not flowing. There is not enough of it. It is particularly evident in emerging markets. And whatever flows you have, a significant part of those, up to 45 to 50% globally, more in some jurisdictions, is allocated to gold. Gold is not a critical mineral, and yet it is an investor darling because it's a well-understood production with good returns. So the, the criticality narrative is part of what mining finance considers, but at the moment it is not at all resulting in a paradigm shift like a super cycle. So you hear a lot about the new super cycle. Super cycle is when both demand and supply And prices are high over a significant amount of time. We are not there yet. The reason it's difficult today to fund development in critical materials is that the business case is extremely complex to make. Prices can be extremely volatile. There is a lot of uncertainty on which minerals will be needed from where. And this is where it ties to the industrial stakes. And this is where I think we need to take the policy approach of the CRM Act as far as we can. Because the actions that are proposed hinge on two notions. The first one is strategic projects. So the EU wants to look for a series of projects which are carried and, of course, structured by the private sector, which are going to directly tie in with the ambitions we discussed before. What that means is that the market will be driving the choice of these strategic projects. If a market doesn't find a project to be technically and economically feasible, to be aligned with responsibility standards, and to meet its threshold for investment and financing, it simply will not continue. Even if the EU says it's strategic, the EU will not be funding where the market doesn't go. It may supplement, it may facilitate, it may support, but it will not go where the market doesn't go. The second thing I would say is that the other action pillar of the CRM Act is strategic partnerships. This is the EU dealing with resource-rich countries, which can include Canada and Australia, as well as emerging markets, and redefining a holistic relationship with them where, yes, CRM is an element, but beyond CRM, 
the view is very much to, and these are the exact words of the act, integrate value chains. Those are very strong words from an industrial perspective. This means that the EU is inviting its industrial sector to come to the table, envisage what it can do beyond the internal market, how it connects to its future, and perhaps redesign its own structures and value chains. This also means that the policy impulse will create a funnel for private sector action, will support it and enable it, but cannot replace it. Part of the strategic partnerships is very much adding layers of support to resource-rich countries where useful, whether that's infrastructure investment through the Global Gateway, support in terms of governance, capacity, and skills. But the reality is the industrial aspect, from CRM extraction all the way to potentially achieving the local value addition goals that are often stated as part of that conversation, all of that will come down to the private sector, particularly industry and mining, coming together to redesign, reshape value chains. It's a hugely complex and, frankly, uncertain endeavor. I also think it's a very forward-looking one. So now is the time to mobilize around it. Now, the EU is obviously not the only economy or economic space that is thinking about these things or working on similar topics. You mentioned the US earlier. What do you think? How will those initiatives, such as the EU Critical Raw Materials Act, change the relationship, for example, with the United States, but also countries such as China? Will that have an effect? Will there be a pushback? Do we have an arms race of sorts of procurement efforts of all different sorts? Again, it's difficult to give a really definitive answer. What I see is that I currently try to live in two realities, in a reality which is very much the sector I come from, mining and the investment that creates mineral growth, and increasingly in a sector of policy and competing policy initiatives at all levels. I'm not 100% sure that the competition in the policy space actually translates into the same realities in the investment space. What I do see is that you have a U.S. approach, very much a blanket approach, very much leave it to the private sector and focus on the locomotive, which is EVs and batteries, and the whole value chain to align behind it with an extension of incentives via free trade agreements. That is completely on the opposite of the spectrum from a Chinese approach, which is extremely transactional. I was working in Africa over the last 15 years, and you can see that Chinese investment works almost on a shopping list approach. They come into a country, they have a series of target mineral projects, and these are effectively exchange for consideration in infrastructure and loans. We've seen the outcome, which is highly debatable. But you have a lot of other models The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has just structured a sovereign fund to invest in critical materials outside of its borders. Japan announced in April, I believe, that it would subsidize investment by Japanese companies at all level of mineral value chains 
inside and outside its borders. I think the interesting thing about the EU approach is that it definitely tries to bring together a policy discussion, a bilateral discussion with resource-rich countries, particularly with emerging nations, particularly with Africa. This is set in a context of resetting relationships which have shifted and dwindled and where there's already a legacy to overcome. And on the other side, very much an industrial component. At the moment, European industry is struggling to show up to that conversation. I'm thinking particularly of OEMs and end users who struggle to invest upstream, who struggle to invest in mining, and who also struggle to say, okay, how do we connect to emerging markets which are not really our scene? But I think the EU, by trying to bring those two together while still letting the market drive itself is trying to effectively do the best of both worlds. Will it work? I don't know. If it does, it certainly redesigns a whole series of relationships around, yes, minerals, but also industrial stakes, the skills and social impact of industry, and of course the environmental component. We very much have to understand that mining as a lever for growth is an old story in many emerging markets. We need to rethink the whole industry and maybe, maybe bringing in new investment from European OEMs and industry will be a game changer. Why not certainly envisage and go as far as we can with those concepts? Ludovine, this is all very complex, I understand. And you also said that uh, you don't have a crystal ball. That being said, we do have a fixed segment in our podcast, which is called A Bold Prediction, The World in 10 Years. So unfortunately, I cannot let you off the hook and I have to ask you or try to nudge you into giving us your prediction. How will the world look like in 10 years when it comes to critical raw materials? This may be wishful thinking, but one of the things that I find most striking about today is the fact that you have a whole new series of stakeholders trying to connect to mining. This is complex because mining and minerals are global, complex, often opaque. But it's even more complex because mining and minerals are shifting themselves. So I think the mining industry is already undergoing massive transformation. First of all, the emergence of a whole new thought process about responsible investment in mining, the connection of mining to industrial stakes, the connection of mining to a much bigger view, a much wider view of policy stakes. When I started in this business, the only government relations that we had to do was with the host countries on permitting. Over the last 15 years, you have had global policy shapers uh, reshaping mineral governance in resource-rich countries. You've had the emergence of responsible sourcing criterias and expectations. And now the criticality agenda is adding a whole new layer of relationships. So mining is not only talking to more people, but it's shifting on the inside. The emergence of radical changes about the waste that mining produces how it manages water, 
how it manages social relationships, uh, how it manages rehabilitation and post-closure operations. So my prediction is that in 10 years, we will see a mining sector that, yes, continues to have the legacy assets of big is best and mega mines, but also has a lot of much smaller assets because critical minerals come in all shapes and packages. Sometimes very small deposits are worth pursuing because they unlock an aspect of a value chain. And we will also have, I think, a lot more innovation in how we actually run these operations. Zero waste mining is not wishful thinking. It's already in progress and advancing. In, a, in an era where we think about mineral use and efficiency and sufficiency, can we really continue to have huge amounts of elements that we simply leave in waste piles? No. So I think in 10 years we will have a mining industry that has learned to operate with different criteria for performance, operational, financial, social, environmental, and that will connect to stakeholders in a very different way, whether that's because we will have much more integrated value chains, which also means that we need to rediscuss the competitive aspects of integrating across value chains, or because we will have completely changed these value chains. It's uncertain that the battery chemistries we discussed today, which guide a lot of our assessment for what is and will be critical, will actually be the batteries that we make in 10 years. True, yeah. That is probably also where we get to the limits of both foresight and, uh, I mean, this was also an exercise in foresight at the end of the day. So thank you very much for at least giving it a, a try. And I think wishful thinking is always good because it adds an optimistic uh, component uh, to it, which is always uh, good uh, as well. I want to focus a little bit in the remaining time of this podcast on the business perspective. Because in this podcast, obviously, we try to look at these issues uh, from a business perspective. And my understanding when it comes to this topic is that you could obviously look at it uh, through the perspective of a mining company, for example, which is the obvious uh, part. But maybe we can focus a little bit on uh, some of the other companies. And uh, if I am running a company that produces any physical good, probably in one part or another, there are some minerals involved in it. So what does it mean from the perspective of such companies? Do I have to look at these things? Uh, should I bother reading those provisions? Is that something that is too far away and I can't influence it anyway? So what does it mean for a producing company that uh, somehow relies on minerals in its uh, production chain? I think industry has had to become interested in minerals in a way it didn't before. Frankly, I think for a lot of Industrial companies, they ordered minerals, those minerals were delivered, end of story. First of all, the notion of competing for mineral access is one that has evolved over the last couple of decades. So as an industrial company, but also as some of the key stakeholders of these businesses, I'm thinking of shareholders, I'm thinking of financiers, even regulators of these companies, the capacity for businesses to source minerals is now something that is part of strategy. So supply chain is no longer a, let's make sure it's ticked off box. It's a, 
can we actually run our business box? The second thing I would say is that companies and businesses produce products or goods that ultimately are sold into a market. The expectations of this market on how things get to consumers, whether these consumers are themselves businesses or individuals or organizations or groups, the question of responsibility in each step of those complex value chains is not going away. And it's not a nice fluffy to have. It's not a, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing good, so please buy my product. What I think is intrinsic to, to the current criticality agenda is that responsibility is part of criticality. In some instances, you could say that requiring responsibility in mineral value chains actually increases criticality because you're removing parts of production that you can't access because it's opaque or you don't know what it's funding or you don't know who controls it and what it connects to. I would respond to that, then find out. So the job of running any business today increasingly requires knowing where everything comes from and accounting for how you factor it into your own processes. So I think from a business perspective, you probably don't need to be understanding every intricacy of how we fund lithium and the fact that today mineral investment prefers hard rock to brines and maybe that will shift in three years. Is that too much? Probably. But understanding that the way we fund lithium will condition your capacity as a business to source but also to account for the minerals you use, that is key. There's a variety of levels depending on which minerals you use. If you're using something as complex and high-tech as rare earths, frankly, deep dive is the only way to go. If you're using copper, aluminum, and nickel, then frankly, those markets are quite wide. They're, they're very... Um, active and dynamic. Do you need the same level of information? Probably not. But nobody knows your supply chain better than yourself. Hopefully. What is key is that supply chain, I hope so, yes, indeed. And if you don't, you should invest in that rapidly. But what is key is that 10 years ago, supply chain was effectively, you know, the guy at the end of the boardroom table that was asked at the end of the meeting, all good? Five years ago, Supply chain started to have to, and procurement started to have to answer questions about conflict minerals and are we funding terrorism? Where do we actually buy this stuff? Today, procurement and supply chain is almost first on the board agenda. That's going to continue. So you need to invest in your board's capacity to understand these stakes and to have a forward-looking view about them. You cannot afford to be reactive. Good. So that is a to-do item for all those CEOs and executives listening to this podcast. If you don't know the minerals that are part of your supply chain, you need to find out now what these are and then think about where you can get them in a responsible manner today, but also 
in the future. This is a complex topic and obviously with all complex topics we can't really talk about everything. Therefore we have another segment in this podcast that we call Executive Briefing. What you should read now. Ludivin, people listening now say, oh, this is fascinating. It's very important for me. Where can they go and what should they read next if they want to dive in a bit deeper into this field? There is an avalanche of information on this. And it's a topic that's covered by policy research who sometimes don't really connect to the investment in industrial stakes, all the way to expert analysts who will tell you every gram of lithium that's anywhere in the world, but are sometimes not quite sure why people care. So you've got everything out there. What I would say is that there are some publications that take a industry-led approach particularly mining industry-led approach to minerals, but at the same time position this in a wider economic and to some extent geopolitical context. One that I would flag is the series of reports that's published by State of Play, a uh, research project based in Australia. The reason this is interesting is because every two years they run a survey of mining and mineral executives. And from this, they then devise a series of reports about the strategy of the sector, but also its connection to other industrial stakes and its wider connection to global stakes. This is, for me, a good way to connect to mining and minerals, to understand what's, what's on our mind, but also to spot some of the things where you, as a business manager and leader will say, well, wait, 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 if this is a problem for them, that means that three years from now it becomes a problem for me. So I think this is a good place to connect. What's interesting is that State of Play are currently running their uh, 2023 survey. So by the end of the year, they will have a whole new series of reports. And I recommend watching that space. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for this uh, recommendation. We'll put the link uh, to that uh, in the show notes so that our listeners can go there and find the uh, publication. We're already at the end uh, of this episode. Ludwig, thank you very much uh, for being with us today. That was a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to discuss this. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.